Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I am joined by a former professional football player, football analyst and broadcaster and an influential advocate for gender equality and racial diversity in sport. Welcome to the Power Hour podcast, Eniola Aluko. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great. I'm, to be honest, incredibly grateful that you would fit us into your busy schedule. <laughs> I know how busy you are. You're jet setting. I, you're probably a little bit jet lagged right now. Yes. Even as someone who doesn't follow football at all, I know that last night was a big night. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a West Ham fan, but it's nice to see like a British team, an English team win. You know, I'm, to be fair, I'm a bit bored of seeing Man City win everything. <laughs> Um, and Chelsea had a terrible season this season, so I'm a little bit bitter. But seeing West Ham win yesterday, there was something just really nice about it. Mm. Declan Rice, I've met him a few times, is a really, really lovely guy and, um, you know, big, big ally for women's football as well. So to see him lift it, knowing that it's probably his last game, it was just nice. Mm. It was just nice and it was nice to see. So congratulations to West Ham. Yeah, as I said, I know zero about football, really. <laughs> I don't really keep up, but I did... Um, one of my good old friends, Adi Adepitan, is a West Ham fan. Is and he? When I saw his... I didn't Insta- know Adi was a West Ham fan. Yes, and when I saw Aww. his Instagram, I was like, wow, this is, this is a moment. <laughs> was it just everywhere? Yes, I just, you know, he looked like he, I don't know, like he'd won the lottery, basically, like the joy. <laughs> you know, people feel that tribalism to their teams, yeah. don't they? You see the joy of people's, you know, celebrations and yeah, yeah I think it's such a, it's, it's a, it's a big thing for people, their and team, And the thing right? is, people wait a long time. I think it was like, it's been like 60 years or something ridiculous when last time West Ham won a, I think it was a European Cup. I think it's, yeah, so it's amazing. It's amazing to see well, you have had an incredible career in football as a professional sports person. You played for Chelsea, Charlton Athletic, Juventus, and of course played for England. Can you take us through your journey from, I guess, from the start in your football career to becoming such a prominent figure in sport? Yeah, so I started playing football when I was five years old. I grew up in Birmingham, Kings Norton, Birmingham. And uh, no one taught me how to play football. Like It wasn't like a thing where, you know... My mum or dad sat me down and said, right, we want you to do this, we want you to play football. I just had it. It was just a gift that I was born with. And luckily for me, I was in my local area, there was loads of boys. So the quickest way for me to sort of be assimilated and and sort of accepted in that group was to play football with them. My brother's two years younger than me. um, So we we were together all the time. And and I quickly realised I was like better than all the boys. Um, and then that became kind of my reputation. You know, it was like, oh, she's the girl that plays football. It came, it became my identity, and it was a very positive reinforcement of that identity. So I just kept kept doing it, you know, because as a kid, that's what you want. You want to be popular. You want, you know, you want other kids to to knock on your door and ask you to come out and play. Yeah. And um, so that was my childhood. You know, that was very much kind of what I did. I just played football. I was a big Man United fan growing up, um, and then. Uh, played in the school team up until the age of 12. And then it was when I got to 12, that was only the first time I saw other girls play football. 
which looking back, it was a while. I felt like I was just the odd one out the whole time. Mm. And then I saw other girls playing football and I was like, oh, okay, like now I can play with girls. And then shortly after that, around 14, I got, I got um, recruited into the England team, England, England youth teams. And once you're in the system, you really just have to try and stay there. And um, yeah, made my debut for England senior team at 18. And uh, the rest is kind of history, mm. you know, just to be able to look back and <clears throat> say, OK, 100 and, 104 caps. If you, if you said to me at 18, I'd get 104 caps, I would be like, there's no chance. Um, a, lot of, a lot has happened um, that was very unexpected, mm. to be honest, but I'm very grateful for it all. It's really interesting, I think, when you hear different people's journeys, especially sports journey so sometimes people will say you know maybe they did loads of different sports so they might have done mm. you know I've heard that from a lot of athletes they'll say oh, I did everything I was in every team I did athletics I did swimming I was psych- I always kicking a football catch and then they have to almost figure out okay I'm good at this which one do I want to pursue or sometimes something kind of comes to the surface somebody spots something in them but it's interesting that you had much more of a kind of I guess a focus that was like you know five years old is so young and as a parent and and any parents listening will know Sometimes children have, you know, phases or stages yeah. and they're really into something for, you know, a year, two, three years. And then, they, you know, it's something else or and, and even for some kids, they don't find one thing that kind of ignites them. So they yeah. might just, you know, have a few hobbies or they might go to a few after school clubs, but they don't find something that really ignites them like that. So I think it must have been, yeah, it must have been really, well, great to have something to really focus on. Yeah. What was, was there any kind of, I guess if you reflect back on it you know did it impact other things or how how did you I guess navigate schoolwork friendships you know yeah. all the things that we all do in our childhoods was football just yeah front and center always yeah it was it was literally everything I did you know and this is obviously before the age of phones right so you know me and my brother literally we used to play out go to school come back play out on the grass jumpers for goalposts you know, until it got dark, come back in and go, you know, have a shower, go to bed. And it was like that repeated, right, up until, you know, you know, the age of 12, probably, when I started playing more organised football. Um, but football gave me so much confidence uh, as, a, as a young girl. Um, I think sport does that. Um, and as I said, I had so much positive reinforcement in school, you know, from that. Oh, you know, oh, any any's playing football, oh, do you want to play? And... Um, you know, little competitions with with boys, like whether I could, um, you know, do skills one v one, like all those things. I look back and I think it gave me so much confidence. Um, even though I I did feel like the odd one out, um, and there, there came there came a time when we'd go to like school tournaments, and because I was one of the best players as a girl, parents would start saying, well no one said a girl could play so it actually started getting quite nasty mm. and I remember at the time I, I couldn't I couldn't cope with it because I'd had su- such positive reinforcement for a long time and I said to my mum I want to start playing tennis um because that's you know this the Williams sisters that were just quite prominent then and I said to my mum I want to play tennis and my mum took took me and my brother to start playing tennis but I wasn't as good at tennis at all well yeah I wasn't as good at tennis as I was at football and I felt like I was running away from my gift and my talent in trying to play tennis just because some stupid parents couldn't cope with the fact that I was better than their son. Um, but it, it 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 does it did give me a lot of confidence. It allowed me to feel comfortable being different, mm. being the odd one out from a very young age. Mm. Um, you know, I 
Kings Norton was was not a diverse area. All my my friends were like white boys who loved me, you know, and 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 I think that really planted something in me that later blossomed later in life, where it's like I felt I feel comfortable in spaces that are, are not really um, dominated by a black girl or black black woman, um, and you know, happy to kind of bring my talent to that to those kind of environments I think it started from when I was very young Mm, yeah oh gosh it's so great to hear that the word confidence you know that it gave you confidence that you felt like you said loved and accepted in that space to be yourself and to be welcomed there by those by your peers is such a powerful thing and not something that everybody experiences yeah so gender equality in sport is a topic that I think you know it seems to be getting more airtime you know we hear people talking about it in different campaigns on social media and tv but what do you think the reality is? Are things actually changing for the better when it comes to, yeah, I guess firstly, like gender equality? Yeah, I think um, I think things have shifted a lot. Um, it's never utopia, it's never perfection, but I think, you know, I can only speak from a perspective of, of female football um, and, and women's sports. And I think when you look at the prominence now that the women's game has in broadcasting... Um, when you look at the the brands that have come in to really amplify the stories of female athletes and women in sport and women in business, um, it, it's it's night and day compared to you know what I had growing up when I didn't really see any female role models on the TV. Mm. Um, that, that just wasn't my reality. Um, so in terms of equality, uh, there is a there's been a huge shift towards that you know, equal, um, just equal kind of, an equal platform for prominence. Um, so young girls can look at, you know, women in sport and think, oh, that's what I want to be um, and, and really aspire to be that. Um, I think, obviously, in, in football, people always make comparisons to, you know, the financial yep. situation where, you know, well, well, you know, female footballers are still not earning the same amount of money. The reality is, is that that you know the men's game is a hundred years ahead. Um, it's a commercial, you know, entity, um, and and I think the women's game is starting to become that. It might take a while. It might never get to that level. Um, but I'm more. I care more about the 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 ability for young girls to be able to look at genuine role models on the TV daily. Um, and it become the norm. Mm. In broadcasting, obviously, um, women are becoming more of the norm. I still think there's a little bit of like you can only have one. Right. <laughs> you know, I'd love I'd love a situation where if I'm commenting on a men's game, there's not just one woman. You know, in a panel of men, there's maybe two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, let's just pick the best broadcasters. Um, but that takes time, and and you know. Um, I think I think if you if you said to me ten years ago that there'd be so many women behind the camera in front of the camera involved in in sport, I, I probably would have said that's ambitious. But we're here, and and hopefully we can keep going. Yeah, it, yeah, I guess it's happening, and it's not just in in football or in sport. To be honest, when you said that about you know there's only one, it's in so many industries. Yeah. You know, I experienced that myself. I know my peers do. Yeah. Whether that's in yeah the world of business, whether it's in corporate spaces, you know, often I'll deliver you know keynotes or I'm at conferences. Like I think next week I'm at London Tech Week, and there's so so often when I scroll through either website of the conference or I attend, and as you said, I'm often 
the, the only, only one. one. Like yeah. I went, there was one last year where people didn't actually, be, not well, they didn't believe me, but you know, people on social were like shocked replying to my stories going, really are you kidding and and because I was at this conference where I was the chair and mm. there were I'd say in there was 300 people in the room and I think probably 10 were wow. female 10 and then as for the actual keynote speakers the panelists I mean there was maybe two other women and this was a two-day event in London and it's and this wow. was about you know the future of health tech, fitness, wearable devices, you know, wow. connected fitness, connected this. And it was kind of, you know, it's that crossover, I suppose, between fitness, well-being and technology. So obviously those things, the things that were being discussed in the room and the the brands, the the organisations, the, you know, 50%, 51% of the, of the population are female. Mm. So if you've got three women in a room of 300 men talking about these things, about future health, future well-being, future technology... All the there's so many considerations yeah, that are missed. So many, so many. So I think, yeah, a bit of a side note, but I think across it, yeah. the board, a lot of people are seeing this like there's one woman here or there's two women here, and it's as the as the woman in that position, it's kind of wild, right? Well, I, it's so it's so interesting because you know when you ask the question about have we moved on in, in terms of an equality standpoint, we have, but there's still so so long to go. Mm. You know, um, I could sit here and say, yes, we've moved on in, in, in sport and football, but you've just given an example where that's just not acceptable, right? Like in terms of um, women in tech and well-being and health. So it's kind of like the minute you feel like you've made progress, another industry makes two steps backwards, right? And it's just, I don't really know what the answer is to... I think there's just a lot of gatekeeping um, in, in, in industries where certain women are allowed through the gate and it just takes a while for more to be let through, right? Mm. By 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 men who are gatekeeping, right? Mm. And want to protect their positions and want to continue to be the decision maker and, and the power brokers. It's very, very hard. Often I think they don't actually notice. That's the other thing that's yeah. interesting at that particular conference is mm. that when I asked some of the guys there, especially because I knew them quite well, I was like, wow I was like seriously like there's no women here right and it was only when I said it that they were like oh yeah and I was like how can you not notice like they, they didn't notice yeah, they generally were like yeah it's, it's so normal you're in those spaces they're in those spaces day in day out and it's not it's not at the front and center of their mind so I don't think it's necessarily sometimes you know oh we don't want women on this panel or women in this discussion it's more the fact that they don't notice the absence of us until it's pointed out to them yeah, that's 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 pretty shocking. <laughs> yeah, but moving back to because I actually you know started off obviously saying you've had this incredible career and you know for any professional athlete sports personalities whenever I do interviews with athletes I'm always a fan girl. Anyone who's listened to this <laughs> podcast for a long time will know that like Adrian is obsessed and it's because you know as someone who's always been you know active you know fitness sport I've never obviously competed uh, as a professional. But I'm just, you know, it's been my world for so long. You know, like my favourite thing every summer, you know, watching the uh, athletics, the you know, the track and field. It's just always been, I don't know, I've just had this love for it my whole life. And so I'm always so, I guess I've been closer to it than, than other people, would you say? So I know sometimes what the discipline, yeah. the lifestyle, the sacrifices, the mental, uh, I guess, roller coaster, the emotional, the identity part. There's so much that goes into yeah. being a professional sports person. Like it's just, you know, fascinating to me. So I want to look back to that and kind of understand, I suppose, 
you had that career, you had that lifestyle. Are there any things, I suppose, from a motivation, you know, so self-motivation, self-discipline? I think you have to be incredibly self-disciplined and self-motivated to, to, you know, sustain a career in sport. Are there any things that you learn or practiced or, or, or that you did then, these strategies that you still use now and things that our listeners could kind of think about and employ into their lives? Yeah, I think the the, the self discipline um, is is one that's transferred over from when I played to now. Um, I was very committed after I retired to make sure that I stayed fit um, and applied some of the sort of self discipline, you know, that just comes naturally as a professional athlete. Um, so I'm still training five times a week. You know, I still try and eat as well as I can. Um, I'm the biggest lightweight in the world. You know, if I try and have a drink, I can only really have two or three because, you know, my body's just... You're so small. I know. <laughs> but I just, I've just, I didn't drink for so long that now I drink, my body's like, what are you doing to me? Um, so I do actually try and have fun and let my hair down sometimes and have a drink, but it doesn't really work that way because I think when you sort of live a healthy lifestyle, it just shocks your body into... You know, the body, my body doesn't like it. Um, but that's really important because that also affects mental health. You know, the way I, I really approach feeling good about myself as a woman, um, working out, um, you know, really, really being disciplined about, you know, pouring into myself. Mm. Um, that's really important to me. Mm. Um I think one of the things that happens when you retire is you do claw back time, time to spend with your family, time to spend with your friends. Your weekends are non-existent because you play, right? So I really try to be really intentional about spending time with friends and family on a weekend, you know, specifically because I just lost so much of that time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whether it's going to the theatre or going out to eat or you know, going for a walk in the park with my mom. Like, there's so many things that, like, I kind of look back, I think, oh, my God, like, I never did that, you know? And it's it's quite a selfish existence, to be honest, mm. as a professional athlete. So I've tried to, like, pull back into those, that time now I'm retired. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's that, that consistent drive to achieve something. It, it doesn't leave you. Um in a way that just sometimes I have to tell myself to slow down. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I don't, you know, people say to me, you must be so busy and I don't feel it because I've been so used to just operating mm. at this really high driven level. Um, well, it's high performance, isn't it? So I suppose, yeah. you know, when I'm, when I'm saying to you self-discipline or self-motivated, you might think that your routine, your schedule, that's normal because it's yeah. normal for you because you're a high-performing yeah, yeah, person. Yeah. So, you know, you've transitioned from being a professional athlete to, of course, being a broadcaster, so football pundit, and you've also pursued academic studies. So it's a very unique and interesting path. So I'd love to know, I suppose, you mentioned then that drive. What was it that motivated you about the different areas? And can you as well maybe ex explain to listeners, you know, what that journey has been like and what you've been studying? Yeah, well, um, obviously women's football sort of when I was younger was not a professional career um I played you know semi-professionally um was paid but not not to the point where I could call it a career so you know education was really important for me um I'm Nigerian so my, my parents were not going to allow me to get away with <laughs> not, not reading my book and doing well in school um so I you know from sort of 
GCSE A-levels, I was pretty focused on doing well in school and I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird was my favourite book and that kind of inspired me to to become a lawyer. So I went to went to university, went to Brunel, shout out Brunel, um, and did law, went to law school um, and was playing kind of as well as studying, but um, I was really focused on kind of finishing my, my law school just so that I could have a professional career to fall back on because at the time there was no certainty that, you know, we could make any anything from professional women's football. Um, it was only after that that it sort of kicked off after the 2012 Olympics. So, um, yeah, I, I did the whole legal thing, you know, did a did a LLB and then did two years training as a lawyer, um, focused on sport and entertainment, which kind of made sense because I was already in the game and, and so did a lot of training around, like, you know, contracts and I was say you can do your own contracts. Right. Yeah, <laughs> rights and um brand deals and all that kind of stuff. Um but I look back and I'm like really happy that that's kind of the way it went because post career I didn't feel like oh my god who am I now I'm not a professional athlete and I think a lot of athletes go through that particularly in the men's game. They just don't know what to do mm. because their whole life has kind of been, you know, um just through the prism of of football. But I think it's really important to do other things, like whilst you're playing, you know, it may whatever that may be, um, we 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 should have more than one string to our bow. I, I do believe that. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Obviously, we're multifaceted people, so we might have different interests. But I think you're totally right in terms of the world as I see it, the world of work, the way it's going to continue to, you know, exponentially changing at pace. And I think back in the day, the message might have been, you know pick and stick you know the idea yeah. of you know you can't be a jack of all trades so pick yeah. something and to yeah. be the best at it you've got to just be you know laser focused don't do anything else stay in your lane like all these kind of things when actually I feel like so many of the success stories or the kind of you know especially within entrepreneurship and within business they'll they've always had maybe three different yeah. things that they've really you know not just a side hustle but things they've really dedicated time and effort to 100% but it's not an easy thing to do 100% I, I think it's really important and um your skill sets, you know, your skill sets can really manifest in different ways in different areas. Mm. Um, I, I don't believe that we are one dimensional, um, any of us, but you've got to tap into that. Um, and I think, you know, just even from a financial point of view, having multiple income streams is important. Mm. You know, it's 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 something that I think we should we should definitely teach our kids as well. Like, you know, you can do more than than just one thing. Um, obviously the dominant thing for me has always been sport but off off the back for sport that's opened doors to do other things mm. um, you know whether it's broadcasting whether it's law whether it's you know um, traveling all these things that you know you can you can tap into to to create more success for yourself yeah and so of all the things that you do because you do do so many things at the moment what would you say is the I don't know what's the highlight. What's the what's your favorite thing? Where you sit down, and you go, "Oh my gosh, I'm doing this today. I can't wait!" Like, what, yeah. yeah, what are you excited about? I really do love the broadcasting stuff. Um, I, I really enjoy the, the 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 ability to kind of analyze football. Um, I love football; it's my passion, and you know, talk to an audience and hopefully give insights. Um, that the audience would not ordinarily have known, right? So as a player, as a former player, that's kind of your job, is to, you know, give some some nuggets of insight um, 
description of goals or um, just different perspectives of how you see the game. Um, I really enjoy it. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate to have been able to do it, you know, both for men's and the women's game across international football, domestic football. So I'm in my element when I'm broadcasting. I really, you know, and, and I've kind of gone full time with that. Yeah. Um, you do a lot of live, don't you? Yeah. How how do you find that? Because obviously as a speaker, <laughs> I'm always thinking, you know, this podcast, for example, it's yeah. not live. You yeah, know, if yeah, yeah. anything happened, you could edit. And even though I do live events where, like I said, there might be, I think the most I've probably uh, presented to is maybe 5,000 on a on a. Uh, this was during lockdown. It was on like a big, you know, virtual thing. But it's still... I don't know, even though I guess that is live, it doesn't feel, I mean, it's not millions. It's not, you yeah. know, and also the thing about live, I suppose with TV is that, yes, it's live, so anything could happen. You might, you know, something might go wrong. But as we know, the world of, you know, social media and things mm. going viral, it's like back in the day, I'm sure if something went wrong on TV live, you'd be embarrassed. But now I feel like it would literally be, oh my God, you'd yeah. be a meme for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, how do you, how do you cope with the, the th- do you think about the fact that it's live? Yeah, I mean, I, my, my sort of, my thing is always to be as relaxed as possible because if you think about it too much, you won't do it. Mm. It's scary, right? Thinking millions of people are hanging on to you every word, particularly as a female, you know, Mm. you know, there's a lot of, still a lot of men watching the game that don't, do not understand how a female can understand the game better than them. Um, It's changing, but there's still a lot of men that are just waiting for you to to mess up. So they can explain the rules Um, So they can, yeah, (laughs) explain the rules or say, oh, you don't know anything about football. Um, So I try to relax as much as possible just through the amount of prep that I do. So I'll never go on a show without kind of really feeling like I, I understand players, teams, the stats the narrative behind the game, all of those things. And then I get excited about sharing it. Mm. Um, so I think the the most important thing is to be as relaxed as you can and as as, as um, calm as possible because the audience can also see if you look tense and it's not cool. You know, it, it, they can sense inauthenticity. But you listen, you make mistakes. You know, I made, I, I made a mistake back in uh, at the World Cup and it went viral. I think I said something about, um, I was talking about a player and I got my math, maths wrong. Um, I didn't even realise I made the mistake in the, in, in the moment. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of how innocuous it was. Anyway, some idiot picked it up and, and it said, oh, you know, this is any Luco doesn't know how to do maths, whatever. There's still people now, nine months later, that remind me of it. Oh, great. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Just haters. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I find it quite funny, but, you know... Everybody in live TV makes mistakes, mm. like everyone. In life. And, you know, and it's just, and in life, yeah, and it's just, it is what it is. Um, I mean, if that's the best, if that's the only kind of mistake I've probably made in however many years I've been doing broadcasting, um, well, I'm sure I've made a lot more, but that's the one that people want to remind me of. I think yeah. I'm doing all right. Yeah, you know oh what I mean? Because exactly. I, do, I do so much. Um, so it, it is scary, but. You, you kind of learn to get excited about it and and just perform in the moment, you know? Yeah, well, as I say, as a high-performing person, you probably, you know, this is what you do. But I think for anyone listening, you know, the key takeaways for me for what you said is around one, preparation, 
You know, people say that, oh, prepare, and people go, okay, cool. But actually doing preparation is, I mean, the idea of doing things without preparation is that's a risk, right? You're just literally stepping into the unknown. So anything that you're doing, whether it's in your professional life, whether it's, you know, stepping out into something new, the more that you can prepare, and I mean real preparation, so whether it's hours, whether it's study, whether it's practice, repetition, deliberate practice and repetition is what I call preparation. Absolutely. I heard that and I was like, yeah, okay, of course she's, She's not just sitting there feeling calm and relaxed. She's feeling calm and relaxed because because I've prepared absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That is key for me. Um, and actually, I've got to the point now where you know sometimes someone will call you on the day of, right, and say, "Can you come on my radio show? You know, and talk about this." And I'll say no because I've not I've not had time to prepare. I've not had time to think about it. And there's some things that you just naturally just know right and you can you can do it in the moment but I I do I do respect the audience and I think that I'm in a very prominent privileged position to share information and 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 to sort of give a perspective so if you just rock up thinking oh yeah you know I'm any Luco, I'll be all right I, I I can't do that so for me you know I have to have a level of preparation I'm not saying days and days and days but I need to be able to kind of absorb you know, the information, think about what I want to say and then deliver it. Mm. Yeah, so preparation is key. Is key. And then also the part on mistakes because I think for a lot of people it's either the fear of mistakes or the idea that after that mistake, you know, I'm never going to do that again. Yeah. You know, whereas as you just said, you're like, yeah, nine months on, some probably one person wants to go, oh, you made this mistake. But 99% of the things you're doing right, you might, you just, you know, you might exactly. not be reminding yourself of those things. Exactly. And I say that, I, I, yeah, I say that all the time that you, you actually get better as a, as a result of your mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I watch myself back a lot as well, um, which... A lot of people find hard to do, yeah. Um, but you have to do it because you'll pick up on things. You go, "Oh, I could have said that better. I could have done that better." Um, but fail, you know, failing mistakes is all part of kind of becoming more successful. Mm. Um, I use it as a tool to kind of get better if I can. Yeah. Well, there's so many things I'm literally going thinking now I'm like about failure, but there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about. But the next topic, I suppose, is quite a big one, and that is about diversity. And, Mm. you know, I know that you use your voice, you use your platforms to promote equality and diversity in sport. Um, But how do you envision, I suppose, well, I guess that's the first place to start, because I think in football, maybe more than other sports, actually, it feels like every week every month you know whether these these big tournaments these big players that it just seems to be quite archaic i think in compared mm. to some other sports when it comes to the treatment of players when it comes to the narrative surrounding how you know black players people of color are often treated and then how those um incidents i suppose how they're reported how they're you know just the whole narrative around it just feels very still divisive which Very is bizarre divisive, i'm like yeah. how can it be divisive in 2023 to be discussing you know the poor treatment of people literally due to the fact that they're black you know it kind of feels like say archaic but yeah over to you i suppose from your perspective how do you yeah i guess you're much closer to it yeah how is that i don't understand it to be honest i, I think that um i think the sort of origins of football in this country are you know working class um you know white working class right so what's happened is there's been a huge cultural shift over the the course of you know i don't know 
100 years where um, social mobility has come into football and you see, you know, young black girls and boys um, breaking into um, very prominent positions in football, earning a lot of money from that. Now, that naturally also is reflected in in, in society. Um, you know, black black people being in higher positions, um, getting better jobs, etc. So often I think, is it is it a response to that? Is it a response to sort of like the changing world and people feeling like, okay, we're no longer superior? I, I don't really know, but I don't understand how you could have someone on a football field still being racially abused for the colour of their skin. Um, it, 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 it boggles my mind. What What is happening now is that you you just can't get away with it anymore. Um, there has to be better punishments. Um, you know, there was a recent incident in, in Madrid, um, a, a guy called Vinicius Jr. was racially... He's been repeatedly racially abused in Spain. Now... What's happening now is rather than everyone saying, oh, please stop racism, which is just not going to happen, now there's pressure on sponsors to pull out. Mm. There's pressure on, um, you know, financial organisations to sponsor those leagues because when you attack where the, you know, the sources of funding of these leagues that allow this racism, that's when they step up and say, okay, we need to do something about this. Mm. Um and it shouldn't have to be that way, but I think when you look at other areas of sport, like match fixing, like do- anti-doping, there's very, very strict rules around it. In the same way, racism should be the same. So I, I just think there's a z- there should be a more zero-tolerance pol- policy around it, and sponsors should be very, very clear, mm. you know, about saying we will not fund or sponsor these teams or these leagues if your fans continue to be racist. I think if that happens, then we will see a lot less um, racism in the game. Yeah, it's so interesting when you outline it in that way, comparing it to things like, yeah, anti-doping or or other things like legislation, essentially, you know, having rules. And like you said, money talks. So as soon as it kind of becomes... Yeah, there's a there's a profit and there's a there's exactly. something going on. Then it shouldn't, as you said, come to that. However, you've just given you know a clear example of a structural change that could have a, a huge impact. So yeah. or players or players walk off the field. Mm. You know, I'm a I'm a I wouldn't say I'm an advocate for that because you you don't want it to happen. But I think that's the only way that you know um, the world sees how serious this is. Mm. Um, you know, and players unite black and white, you know, people of colour, walk off the field until it stops. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I take it very, very seriously. Um, but, you know, again, it's one of those where it's like back back in the day, black players had bananas thrown at them on the pitch. You know, we're not, we, we don't have that anymore, but there's another form of, of racism. So I, I don't know if racism's ever going to go away. You know, racism has been part of society since the beginning of time. But, you know, if you make, uh, create such deterrence that it starts to really impact clubs and the game, then, you know, I think you're going to see much, much less and you mentioned advocacy and actually the idea as you say of walking off the pitch and I just think how powerful it would be for some of the most you know the captains some of the most uh, I guess you know the the superstars the most famous players in the world 
who aren't black, you know, the exactly. non-black players to, to advocate and to be allies and to say, this isn't behaviour that I'm going to play in this situation. And actually, you, you think about the power and the impact. There's millions, millions and millions and millions of eyeballs watching those games, exactly. young people. Exactly. And it really trickles down. This is something that I've only experienced, I suppose, in the last few years with my son playing football. And he does not play to the level that, you know, you know, some kids, they're like, they're in the academies. They, yeah. you know, live, sleep, breathe football. Jude just plays because, you know, it's, he likes it. He likes yeah. it. It's fun. And, you know, it's, it's physical activity, it's team. But as he's got older, I've seen, you know, I guess the, the ripple effect of culture and behaviour in sport. So, for example, you know, when you go and watch a tennis match, you know, the player, the, the parents aren't screaming on the sideline at the ref. They're not shouting at their kids. They're not, you know, there's so much, mm. the, the, the behaviour I think that I've noticed, especially as he's gone from maybe like 9, 10, 11, nearly 12, it's wild. Like, it blows my mind. I can stand on a Sunday morning watching the match and there's only been you know, a few times this has happened, but I know from friends that they say, oh, yeah, that's what it's like, where, you know, there's dads shouting at the ref or there's dads mm. shouting at other dads or there's dad, And I'm talking really confrontational, mm. aggressive, swearing. Yeah. And then I think... They're copying. They're copying. And so this 11-year-old who's thinking, I can shout at the ref or I can mm. swear at my dad or I can... This kind of during a game... And I, as you say, there's millions of people watching these players, watching them behave, watching what happens. So I dread to think when it comes to exactly. racial abuse, where when you go, when when we see in schools these things that are happening, these you know horrendous things that these young people are saying, and you do have to question where are they hearing that, where are they learning that? Yeah. Because you don't see that, you know, I don't want to just be all, you know, but yeah. I don't see that when I take him to athletics practice. I don't see that when yeah. I take him to a swimming it's lesson. It's part of the sport. And I, I think there's part of a cultural beginnings of the sport mm. um and you know yeah how, how that how that has sort of moved away from just being a, a sport for for white working class it's mm. changed mm. you know it's it's for people of color it's for women it's for um you know it's for people you know from the lgbtq community like there's a whole heap of people who have a right to play football too mm. but whether you know, there's an acceptance of that, that, you know, that's where we are. You know, there'll always be a situation where new, when new people come into the game, the people who, you know, the originals will either accept it or not. And then there'll always be some idiots who, who want to show that we, we're not accepting this. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, almost half the league, Premier League, is played by um, people of colour or, or, or black men. Um now that's a that's a progress and that's that's a development but then when you look at coaching when you look at the executive side of the game it's again it's minimal mm. so again we've got another you know so it, it, it just continues to um be a challenge um that we you know that you hope in 10 years time we we won't be we'll be talking about it as a norm you know yeah. where there's breakthrough in those areas as well. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, I suppose, you know, it sounds, I'm sound very negative and I don't want it to deter people because, as I said, my son just plays for fun, but I do have friends who have sons, black sons, uh, mixed race sons, and they do play and they're incredibly, you know, some of them are amazing, amazing talent. And you think, you know, what a shame to kind of think, actually, I don't want my kids yeah. in that environment. I'm yeah. going to pull them out of that. And as you said, maybe go and do tennis or go and do something else because, you know, as a parent, you sometimes think, gosh, you want to safeguard them and you don't yeah. want them to experience, yeah. you know, those kind of things. So, yeah, let's hope, I suppose, that for young people and for parents of young people listening and, you know, people that really do 
look to people like yourself, you know, when they're watching, when they're the, whether it's the the broadcasters themselves, whether it's the football analysts, like you said, they're listening and learning. It's it's such a different thing for young people now. They've got so much access, you know, to, to huge the fact access. they can follow on Instagram. You know, they can really follow. They feel so close to the players and to the to the sport. I think it inspires them in a, in a different way. Yeah, I mean, sport sport has given me everything, you know. So I, I definitely encourage it for young young people to get involved in sport, you know, that get involved from a diversity standpoint. You know, it's important that the game is as diverse and inclusive as possible. Um, so it's a very, you know, we're talking about something negative, but, mm. you know, nine times out of ten, it's a very positive experience that brings confidence, that brings self-discipline and all the all the sort of byproducts of playing sport is uh, is all is very positive. Yeah, and even if you don't play or your kids don't play or you're not, just being a spectator, right? Buying a ticket, going yeah, to a live yeah. sport again. You remember during COVID, we couldn't go to these things. And now I feel like, you know, going to live sport, we saw obviously the, you know, with the lionesses. And like, I feel like when, when you take children into environments where they see it and they're mm-hmm. there, it's so different, right? It's to just watch it on TV. You kind of go have that experience with your family, with your friends, yeah. with your parents. And it's, it's really, really memorable and powerful. Well, we talk a lot, you know, about how society's become so tech-focused. You know, everyone's in front of their laptops, kids are on their phones, you know, playing video games. But you cannot replace live sport. You cannot, well, live anything, live entertainment, live sport. Um, you can't replicate it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, you know, young kids being able to sort of be close to their heroes see them in the flesh you know maybe get a shirt at the end of the game you know these are things that you just can't replicate you know through technology or um so I'm a big advocate of like going to games I get I try and go as much as possible myself because Mm. you just you feel that emotion you feel that energy in the stadium you you know loads of people coming together for the same cause all of those things Mm. I think are, are really important yeah, no, I agree. As somebody who missed out, sadly, on going to Beyonce and saw every... Oh, my goodness. Right? No. Right? It's not what I deserve. I, saw, I, I know. I don't know how... Basically, I do know how. When the tickets went on sale, I was abroad, and I remember everybody being like, Beyonce tickets go on sale tomorrow. Set your alarm. Wake up. Blah, blah. <laughs> and I was living my life. I was on the beach. I was in the Dominican Republic. I was like, oh, what else? Oh, okay. And then I came back, and everyone was like, yes, got my tickets. And I kind of just forgot about it until every single person that I know in the world was at Beyonce and I was sitting at she, home. And you had four bites of the cherry. She did four shows in London. Don't, don't. I was watching it and I felt so sorry for myself and I was like, <laughs> nothing is going to, that I've missed out on this opportunity of a lifetime and I don't know how I got to that from live sport but I feel like going to things. <laughs> to see it live, right? yeah. Man. You know, I can play that album on It's repeat, so funny it's you mention that because Renaissance, I didn't actually love the album. The- I know, I know. What? I, everyone has that reaction. What? I just didn't, it just didn't Alien land for superstar. me. Cuff it. I mean, cuff it, yeah, Anula. but cuff it, I feel like TikTok ruined cuff it. Oh, I, um, <laughs> I, yeah, so I just didn't connect with the album, and, and I'm a huge Beyonce fan. But going to see it live, I'm, now, I'm like the biggest re- Renaissance fan. Did you hear me say I did not get the ticket? I know, I'm so, <laughs> okay, I'm but so I'm glad sorry. That, you know what, if anything, I'm glad that that experience changed the album for you because the album is iconic. Come on. Really? Yes. In comparison to the other she's done? Yes. Wow. Yes. I mean, we, we're going to have to agree to disagree on that yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, we waited for a long time. But I like it more okay, now. Good. Now yeah. I've seen her live. I like it. I, I definitely like it more. But again, that's because of the live you experience, see? you yeah. know? Like, seeing someone in the flesh, 
seen her daughter on stage dancing, yes, you know, like, and do you know what? I have a sneaky feeling that might be her last tour. Oh, don't Sorry, do Adrian. Don't do this. Even, you know what? Even one of my friends. This is a real digression. I'm just rubbing it in even more. Rubbing it in. One of my friends. She even actually, she actually couldn't get tickets for London. Guess where she went? Barcelona. She was like, I am not missing this. Do you know what? That is a very good idea. That I would commit, do that. Do you know? I'd go to Paris, Barcelona. We live and learn. As you said, we all make mistakes. <laughs> this is a life mistake of mine. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Okay, so let's talk about the Power Hour because this is a Power Hour podcast. Every single guest who has been on the show in the last four and a half years has told us a little bit about the first hour of their day. Now, this has taken on different, you know, different things. And sometimes people think it's about, you know, productivity or it's about motivation or it's about which for some people it is, Mm. uh, myself included sometimes. But the real message that I want people to think about is in our fast-paced world where we're all time poor, where we're all from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to bed, we feel as though our time, energy, focus, attention is being stolen from us. I encourage people to start the day with one hour, if they can, if it's less, fine, but one hour dedicated to themselves, to something Mm -hmm. that they want, to start the day in the way that they feel good. So, Aniola, tell us, what (laughs) is the first hour of your day all about? So my power hour... Um, typically involves working out. Um, I promise myself to not be on social media. So impulsively, I think a lot of people just wake up, go on their phone and they're on social media. Um, I didn't like that at all. So now I've put all my settings to not be on social media until after my power hour. So what, after what my time workout. What did you get up? Uh, I usually get up about seven. Okay. Um, so from seven to about nine o'clock, I do an hour of workout, so I'm a big Pelotoner. I love the Peloton. So I'll do a bike session or a weight session. Um, uh, I've got into my Pilates now, so I do a lot of Pilates. Um, And that just sets up my day amazingly. Mm. I feel so good. And what that does as well, it means I eat well. So if I work out well, it means I want to put good food into my my body. So, because I'm terrible when it comes to breakfast. Like, I'm usually like, I'm usually- Take it or leave it? I usually skip breakfast, but I'll have a juice or, you know, I'll have something, something healthy. Um, So that's usually my my hour on most days. Um, If I'm not working out or I'm on a rest day, um, I'll usually try to read something motivational. Um, And I've actually started playing chess in the morning online. It's really, it's really quirky. So basically I play chess like in real life like in like live is there um, anything she can't do <laughs> um I, i've start i started playing chess about three years ago accidentally almost because i was collecting chess boards like just for like artistic purposes and then i started playing chess and now i've stopped joined a chess club so house chess club which is really cool you should check it out um and chess is really good for the mind yes i used to play chess 
You did you? Yes. Right. So you you obviously you know like you have to you can't be on your phone, like you can't be distracted playing no, chess. No. It's very strategic. You've got to think ahead. Um, so I like how playing chess makes me feel in the morning sometimes because it just kind of like it well for me it slows my mind down. Mm. Um, it it just allows me to kind of focus in on kind of like you know strategic things without it being too serious right so there's a few things i love about this i think as you said without it being too serious even though people might think well chess is you know it's not lol but it's not (laughs) it's not having the weight or kind of any attachment to the outcome yeah which is so so important exactly um, a lot of things that we do have so much riding on what you know how successful in quote it is you know how much engagement it gets if it's online exactly. you know rates reviews I, I talk about this myself with my work so much of what you do is kind of seen and measured measured and, yeah mm. having things that you do for just the sake just of it just the fun yeah so important and yeah. chess is I haven't played for years you're kind of reminding me now because my stepdaughter plays she loves chess she she did a chess tournament in France really last year and she yeah she dominated so she's low-key queen's gambit she dominated and she she also she's like I have this video of her because she's in France and she speaks French, her, her mother's French. And she's saying, you know, she's almost like frustrated at the her opponent, an, an older boy, and she's kind of rushing him to like take his turn. And she's like shouting at him in French. I watched this video. I was like, oh my gosh. Wow. She was, you know, yeah, she she um, she um loves it. So you kind of inspired me actually to maybe dust off the chess set. Yeah. Do you know what? I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. And it's, it's, um, it's a great game. It's a historic game, you know, and I love, I love the, um, the sort of uh, symbolism in chess, mm. you know, the fact that the queen is the most powerful piece on the board, yes. you know. I, whoever created chess, I wonder, like, you know, you think about, like, the history of women and, you know, how women have been allowed to be or not allowed to be powerful and why, like, mm. I wonder why the the queen is so powerful in chess, mm. given the history, yeah. you know, given the history of the game and how, you know, for years women were just kind of like, just, you know, existed for just making babies and not doing anything else um so i love that about chess well, i love sure, that symbolism yeah i'm sure we can find out i'm sure some <laughs> of the listeners probably know but also it's interesting when you said women's role for so long was just but actually i think that was just the optics i think the optics may have been that it's just yeah but in reality you know how you know the saying around behind every great man is yeah, the great woman i feel true. like it, the reality of so many or maybe the relationships that i know or people's careers they have this powerful woman Women. driving it and they might the optics might be that they're just there yeah but actually maybe you're they're, right. they're, they're the they're the real brains well, yeah, I mean, even in chess, right, the queen actually is there to protect the king. Mm. Um, but she's powerful, yes. right? So wow. I love kind of how that symbolises, you know, a lot of what I try to be um, in life and what women, you know, what women should be, empowered and strong and confident. Wow, what a great place to end the show. <laughs> I certainly feel good. So thank you so much thank for, you for joining Thank you for having us. me, Adrienne. I really appreciate it. Thank it's you. It's been fantastic. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as I have. I almost forgot in moments that we were recording. So yeah, <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed it. And I'll be back next week with another episode. See thank ya. Thank you. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.